What is going on everybody? This is Alex, a PhD candidate at NUS Business School in Singapore and I welcome you to the third episode of the second season of the Forced Chats series. In this season of the series, I'm having conversations not only with guests from within the field of futures and foresight, but also with leading scholars and practitioners who have an expertise with other disciplines that are relevant to the investigation of the futures ahead of us. I hope that these conversations will not only inform the field of futures and foresight with fresh new insights, but also that it will encourage more dialogue between futures and foresight and other fields of study. The guest I'm talking with in this episode is Thomas Lombardo. Tom is the director of the Center for Future Consciousness, editor of Future Consciousness Insights, Professor Emeritus and Retired Faculty Chair of Psychology, Philosophy and the Future at Rio Salado College and a Fellow and Executive Board Member of the World Future Studies Federation. He has published 10 books and over 60 articles and has given dozens of presentations on topics including wisdom and the future of education, the future of consciousness and the human mind, dystopian and utopian thought, theories of the future, and science fiction. Although Tom is perhaps mostly well known for his work on science fiction, he is an expert in several topics straddling both future studies and the social sciences more broadly, so this really allowed us to have a conversation on a wide range of topics. In fact, we open up the episode discussing how science fiction can be used as a form of inspiration for applied foresight work. And then we move on into the notion of future consciousness, a multifaceted capability to imagine, plan and prepare for the future. I asked Tom about the challenges of measuring future consciousness, the evolutionary aspect of it, and also whether it can be useful to transcend the ideological divide in the sciences, specifically that between modernism and postmodernism. And finally, we talk about Tom's two new books that just came out about the history and significance of science fiction. I hope you will enjoy the conversation. Tom, it is a huge pleasure to be talking to you. Welcome to the Foresight Chats. Yes, hello, Alex, and it's a pleasure to be here. So your work is very extensive. It covers science fiction, it covers future studies, it covers psychology, and all those topics are really dear to me. So it is really super interesting that you are not only a scholar of futures, but also a psychologist. And that really allows us to have a conversation about uh, science, but also future studies. So let me start perhaps by asking a question that is about something that you're quite famous about science fiction. You have done a great work cataloging and describing the science fiction literature from its very beginning to present day. So what are your thoughts about using science fiction for actual foresight needs? For example, let's say we go in an organization and we facilitate a workshop with a group of people. Do you think that we can actually use science fiction as a source of inspiration for foresight and how? <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, uh, uh, this was a good question. And uh, an opening comment that will be helpful here is uh, thank you for uh, stating that I've done an extensive catalog of science fiction, but my real focus is on the development of a theory and understanding of what science fiction is and how it's evolved and why it has been uh, so significant and powerful an influence within um, uh, at least Western society. When you brought up the question of how to bring it into a workshop and what with clients, the first thing that popped in my mind was, well, you know, actually my clients would be futurists to begin with primarily mm. because futurists are really invested and interested in the topic of the future. And so to bring to them what science fiction has to offer is I think the ideal type of workshop to begin with before you even approach non-futurists who I think uh, in organizations who tend not to be that interested or committed or fascinated really with the deep questions about the future. Um, uh, so my clients would be futurists as well as people who are just simply interested in uh, expanding their consciousness and their future consciousness in particular regarding um, uh, the reality that we find ourselves in and how science fiction can do that. Now, we face a bit of a challenge in uh, workshops uh, done either with futurists or uh, uh, academic classrooms or with people that are fascinated or interested in the topic because a central strength of science fiction is that it immerses you in an alternate, often future reality. And it's not simply a set of abstractions, a particular theory that's being presented, say, for example, a lot of times in future studies. Rather, you participate in a reality and, and it affects you by participating in that concrete, dramatic, personalized reality. Now, the best way for that to be effectuated to occur is for you as a client, as a student, as a futurist, to sit and read science fiction. Now, you can't sit and read science fiction stories or uh, uh, even uh, short stories within a abbreviated workshop. Um, so uh, I have taught courses on science fiction, and the way I get people's imagination and thinking going is introducing them to a whole slew of possibilities and ideas that come out of science fiction, and then they go off very frequently and read the stories, read the novels, and get them stimulated doing that. Now, people often will say or ask, that's a better way to say a better way to state it, you know, does science fiction predict the future? Uh, same kind of question will come up in future studies. Does future studies predict the future? And 
my answer is that, well, science fiction presents lots of alternative futures, just like future studies does. In fact, science fiction, in a sense, is more liberating and imaginative. So part of the uh, consciousness raising experience of science fiction is going to be participating in a diverse set of different stories. Just take one thing, for example, dystopian versus utopian science fiction, to sample some of it, to see how people envision negative realities or positive realities. And each story is going to have some message or more than one message, some moral to it. And, but it's presented in the form of a narrative of a concrete story. So I really like describing science fiction and I can do long expositions on the history, on different writers, on you know space travel, time machines, nanotechnology, robots, et cetera, et cetera. But what I really try to provoke in people is to get out there and read it. Because once they start reading and reading good stuff, not just watching uh, science fiction cinema or TV, it liberates and expands their consciousness, their mind outside of their normal everyday mode of consciousness that we're in most of the time. And that is going to take place by immersing oneself in a captivating, imaginative, developed narrative about the future or alternate realities or whatever it is. In fact, more than one. Yeah, well, I can think that it is very easy to teach futurists about science fiction. And those might be an audience that is very attracted to science fiction because when they go to a futurist workshop or any other organizational work, if they have a background in science fiction, they're able to facilitate the workshop more fluently You know, by advising some possible scenarios. They have already this kind of consciousness. But I find it difficult to, to think of how like organizations right, can translate the science fiction directly into their practices. That is one of the reasons why, as you might know, I have uh, attempted to provide a framework for organizations to translate science fiction into their practices, the six archetypes framework. But to be fully honest with you, I, I've never been satisfied about that because for me, there is this challenge, right? The challenge that we know very well on one hand that science fiction is super useful to expand your horizon, expand the boundaries of, of your scenario imagination, so to speak. Yes. And on the other hand, right? On the other hand, it's very difficult to translate that expanded boundary of imagination into practical daily life stuff. So I always have this conflict within me because I, I do know that science fiction is useful, but yet it's difficult to translate it into daily life. So what, what do you think about this? Do you still do you also have this challenge in your work? Well, uh, the science fiction that you know needs mm -hmm. to become what in uh, cognitive psychology is called generative knowledge. It's not just simply that I can explain to you an idea that I got from a science fiction story or novel uh, about a, um, a benevolent uh, robot policeman, okay? But rather, it is for that knowledge of 
science fiction stories and scenarios and characters and themes to penetrate deeply into one's mind so one actually sees the world and understands the world through the eyes of science fiction. And one mm. can generate creative um, constructions from having that knowledge penetrated deeply. It needs to be deeply learned to come to that point. And then, uh, in my case, um, uh, I see uh, multiple aspects of reality around me, whether it's personal or on the news or whatever, through science fiction eyes. I, got it. I have okay. thoughts and reflections on it at the same time. But that's because it's been deeply learned. That's a concept out of educational psychology. It becomes generative knowledge. I could use that knowledge to create more things and to, um, it becomes not just memorization. When I look at, uh, for example, environmental issues, technological issues, interpersonal issues, I frequently will say, you know, that I think to myself, well, that reminds me of something I read in science fiction. Here's a way to look at that. Like, you know, uh, you're eventually going to, at some point, we'll talk about the evolution of the human mind and human consciousness into the future, which is, I think, a very important theme and topic and ideal. What have I learned through reading science fiction about possible ways in which to envision what future minds would be like? What kinds of standards, ideals are we looking to realize here based on what I've read from science fiction writers? The knowledge, another term that gets used here is the knowledge becomes tacit. It, it's more than just explicit, it's tacit. So yes, I understand the challenge, the challenge you're raising there. A point to be made here, uh, speaking as a, a, a teacher and educator, is how long does it take, how much study does it take for knowledge to work itself into the human mind so it actually has some <clears throat> benefit, some some real some substance to the person's personality. Well, you can't do that in a two-hour workshop, sure as hell. Got it. You know, uh, yeah. Um, uh, so uh, yes, it is a challenge. But even if you throw up a bunch of different in, in a workshop, a bunch of different possible scenarios for the future. Somebody who knew science fiction could say, well, here's some examples of those scenarios, plus here's a few more, and here's a whole bunch of variations on those scenarios. But that takes time to have that sink in sufficiently so that knowledge in you becomes workable and it has some meat to it. So what you're saying is that we have to embody it, right? The idea of embodied cognition, I, I think that's where you're going at. Well. I totally agree with that. And it's interesting that what you're saying is we need to read as much as to allow us to literally see it in everyday life, right? If we read enough, you expose yourself to it enough, then you will be, it will be very natural for you to think of everyday occurrences as the starting point of something you have read in science fiction uh, novels or vi viewed in science fiction films. And so you will have so many more 
possibilities ahead. Yeah. How long before, after beginning to study foresight and future studies, did you actually begin to think like mm. a futurist? It took a while. All right. Bits and pieces come. Uh, but um, for a, um, a person running a, a workshop on uh, the future of X, Y, or Z, it's going to take them to have a certain level of familiarity with science fiction to integrate it in, to think that way. And it's going to take some experience on the participants part too. So when people ask me the question, how does one enhance future consciousness if we need to enhance it? The answer is it requires a lot of work and it doesn't come overnight, uh, but definitely we want to enhance it. Yeah. So it would apply in the case of science fiction as a particular way to go about enhancing imagination, enhancing uh, future consciousness. Um, most humans, even in high level positions, are cognitively and imaginatively very conservative. So science fiction breaks you out of that mm -hmm. conservatism, that limited mindset. Um, and uh, But that doesn't happen overnight again. So you mentioned several times this term, future consciousness, and you also said that science fiction helps us to, to improve it. So it seems that this is an important uh, construct. In fact, you have spent a great deal of, of effort explaining the, the importance of future consciousness. So how about we talk a bit about future consciousness? First, what is the relation between science fiction and this capability, future consciousness? And what is it anyway? Okay. Everybody possesses future consciousness, uh, whether you read science fiction, study future studies or not. Everybody possesses it. In fact, it's our most empowering, distinctive human ability. And what I mean by future consciousness is all of the psychological processes, capacities that we use to imagine the future, to plan for the future, to have desires and motives and emotions about the future. It's all of the ways in which the human mind engages the future, our consciousness of the future, not in the sense of being able to see it, or but simply being able to imagine, plan, think about, identify goals, have feelings, have uh, images of oneself, tell stories about it, develop theories of it. All of that is part of future consciousness. And science fiction stimulates future consciousness, enhances it, because it engages the entire person. It doesn't just engage your cognitive abilities, your thinking abilities. It impacts and engages your emotions, your motives, your values. See, like one of the limitations with, that I came to the, this conclusion a long time ago, with most future studies foresight work, is that it's too cognitive biased. It attempts to reason out the future and reason it out and present data with respect to clients and the population. But people are moved by their feelings, their emotions, their whole total psyche when they um, engage the future. Now, future consciousness allows us, and this is an important and distinctive power, 
it allows us to break free of the immediate here and now. We're not limited in our minds to what just is happening at the moment. We possess on one hand memory and historical consciousness, but we possess future consciousness to think out and imagine and feel ahead. And that's a very important uh, and liberating power that we have. Now, people have it to different degrees. Some people have very narrow, habitual, constrained levels of future consciousness. They can't imagine doodly squat. Everything's just going to be the same tomorrow. Some people could be much more imaginative. Some people could think about the future deeply. Other people can't. Part of the reason for highlighting, among other things, science fiction is science fiction, aside from stimulating the entire psyche, the entire person with respect to the future, it expands your imagination about possibilities of the future. I think a couple different famous futurists have said that a, a very a, a creative or, uh, or uh, interesting future is one that creates cognitive dissonance. It upsets one, upsets one. Yes, and a, a good science fiction could do that. But the, the main point there is that even though we all possess future consciousness and we use it all the time, if we didn't possess it, we couldn't even figure out how to get to work the next day. That's future consciousness, even if it's very limited. But we can develop it a lot further, like people are very fearful, pessimistic of the future. Being optimistic and realistically hopeful is a way to enhance one's future consciousness. It empowers you. Uh, that's part of enhancing it. Uh, it's not like you shouldn't experience the dark side of the future, of course, but you also need to think about and work on the positive emotion positive emotional side of future consciousness too. Yeah, so future consciousness is what has created human civilization. Everything that is a significant advancement from the first tools that we produced two, three million years ago, that was all future consciousness at work that was thinking out ahead, planning ahead. A tool is something created now to serve some future goal, whether it's just gonna be butchering an animal or killing an animal. So that empowered us and we can go out further in a more elaborate and plan more cities or consequences of future consciousness and uh, our uh, marriage relationships and bonding or products of future consciousness all of the significant things about humans clearly involve this capacity to set goals, to imagine pathways, to have plans, to, um, uh, to think out ahead, and to work toward realizing things in the future. And we make and we build through that capacity. So future consciousness is not just simply imagination, it's that, it's not just simply thinking, it's emotion, it's imagining myself. It's the whole gamut psychologically. That's what I mean by future consciousness. So if future consciousness is so inclusive, it encompasses feelings, hopes and fear and planning and capacity to imagine the future. 
I have two responses to that, right? And they are conflictual. On one hand, I can think as a futurist, or let's let's just say futures and foresight scholar, yeah, uh, to be to be more precise. And and I would I would say that that is from an advocacy standpoint is very fruitful because by promoting future consciousness as an whole encompassing construct, we really help people to to engage in more imagination about the future and the, their planning and the role that the future or better futures play in their lives. So all good, right? But then the second response I would have to that is as a scientist, right? It's very difficult to measure a construct that has so many dimensions, right? And measuring is also important because when we do wanna explain why future consciousness leads to certain things and why it's good, it appears from what you're saying that it's a beneficial construct to have a, uh, a good future consciousness or a developed future consciousness, whatever, however you wanna conceptualize it, right? Well, when yeah. we do that, when we do that, we need some science, right? So then there is a conflict of measurement because it, it appears that the construct eludes measurement a bit, right? So how do you how do you strike the right balance? And and at the end of the day, why did you choose to conceptualize such an important construct in in so so many dimensions that can be a, against what we call science, right? So what's your views on that? And that question. Uh, as uh, a writer and thinker on this topic of future consciousness, I have thought like a psychologist and maybe secondly as a philosopher. And if you look at the set of what I call character virtues of heightened future consciousness, like self-responsibility, hope, self-discipline, tenacity, love and skill of learning, love and skill of thinking, and you break the, the general construct down into a set of distinct but interconnected psychological abilities, almost every one of those has been scientifically studied, mm. measured, experimented on, and you can see the literature on it. So it isn't unmeasurable at all. It's just multifaceted and mm. there's many pieces to it. But if we were to uh, take one that might seem a bit uh, fuzzy wuzzy, how hopeful is a person versus how pessimistic are they? That's been studied in great detail. The defi there's definitions of hope, psychological definitions, definitions of pessimism. You could take tests to see how hopeful you are versus pessimistic you are. And also there are, there's been research done on what are the consequences of being hopeful versus pessimistic within one's life. Now, one that you may or may not know, but it's a very fascinating one, is that people who are in states of positive emotion, such as hope or love, for example, or joy, actually score better on IQ tests than people who are depressed. That is, positive emotions like hope, enthusiasm, make you smarter. So that's part of my definition of heightened or enhanced future consciousness. Now, I don't mean in this case 
Pollyannish and unrealistic hope, but being in a state of realistic hope, as well as being in love, for example, will make you more creative, better at solving problems, and there's studies on this. So again, you can clearly define the individual constructs, you can measure them, you can see how people vary on them, and you can see what the consequences are of varying on those constructs. See, because, in fact, I should also just mention and go, go look at it, there is a group of uh, foresight researchers up in uh, Finland who about two years ago yeah. published uh, a couple articles on attempting to come up with a, uh, a test uh, for what they called futures consciousness. They mm. put an S on future. They didn't include everything I would have, but mm. I told them that, but they included some things, okay? And they actually created a test that they think has a certain amount of validity and reliability. But, you, but there's all these tests around. You can see how self-responsible you are, how much internal locus of control you have. How, uh, all the different variables on there have been studied by psychologists. See, that's how I'm coming at. See, I came at future consciousness, at, I said, as a psychologist, thinking what were the psychological capacities that we possess that are connected with the future and how could we enhance how can we enhance them? What can we do to strengthen them so that it makes us more constructive, imaginative, creative with respect to our own futures personally too, not just an organization, but personally, because that's one of the things I thought about as a teacher. Future consciousness isn't something just to teach to an organization, enhancing it. It's something to teach to people and uh, individually as a futurist. I think that heightening future consciousness is critical, essential to our flourishing in the future and not falling on our face completely. That we need, we need to, we need to collectively heighten it, and it's it would have lots of different positive consequences. So back to your point: Can it be measured? Yes. Can you determine what the consequences are? Yes. Just got to break it down into its parts. Yeah. Yeah, that is very helpful. So, well, we can say that if you are a scientist, you can just go and measure the single construct that make it, right? And those are a few constructs. But if you are probably a foresight or a futures person, you you are more interested in teaching all those constructs yeah. that are necessary, right, to imagine the future better. And yeah. and that you gave it a name to be more precise and to be more um to help this 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 effort of promotion and that's future consciousness that becomes the umbrella i should just mention that i've done lots of workshops on enhancing enhancing future consciousness over the years at uh, world future society conventions before they kind of fell apart to say the least mm. eventually though i and i'll just put it up here i put together all of the stuff I had done through the workshops and in the classroom and turned it into a big book. But what I also did that goes along with the book is there's an online course that's up on my website that goes through the uh, content of the book. And 
in the various chapters in the book, there are plenty, plenty of activities that people can practice, participate in to enhance That's great. various different dimensions that I talk about in future consciousness. I mean, can you enhance imagination and creativity? Well, you know, you can to a degree. Yeah. There's things you can do, you know, and that's part of heightened future consciousness. Uh, so, um, yeah, so, so the effort has been made there to turn the construct into something for the everyday person on the street that will benefit their personal life, not just organizations, and that you can define a set of objectives and you can go about as an individual who wants to enhance their future consciousness, actually working on them over the years. But like I said before, it's not going to happen in two or three months. It's going to take a while. It's something you cultivate. You know, you, you work at it. That really sounds great, Tom. I'll make sure to post the link to the course in the description box of the video for those who are interested. Yeah. You know, when I was reading about future consciousness, uh, I actually read that book you just showed us. And also another book, The Evolution of Future Consciousness, which I found even more interesting. I love that. And I stumbled upon something I think is is really quite interesting. So the 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 idea that future consciousness has evolved in an evolutionary fashion. And I wanted to ask you a bit more about this because in evolution of future consciousness in the book, you elaborate on the origin of future consciousness as an evolutionary phenomenon, where yeah. evolutionary, right, is intended as a conducive to evolutionary fitness of human beings and to higher likelihood of survival from an evolutionary standpoint. So this, I believe, is crucial. It's a crucial aspect that may be overlooked by those who are not so familiar with evolutionary psychology. And, and so they just may misunderstand evolutionary just simply as that which evolves. But I think there is a deeper meaning to that term. So can you elaborate a bit more on this aspect? Because I think this is one of the most interesting things I've read in that book. How is future consciousness evolutionary? And you can also mention some examples. Okay, yeah, I saw in your notes you know, examples uh, such as um, um, uh, bonding and agriculture, right. rulemaking, uh, and I talk about those um, in uh, the evolution of future consciousness. Explaining that book, the first thing I wanted to demonstrate in that book was that our capacity to imagine and think about the future is not something that occurred relatively recently in history, but it goes back hundreds of thousands, if not millions of years. It's, a, it's been something that's been with us since um, our early, before we even distinguished off as a, a homo sapiens species. Probably, it was probably there in Australopithecus to some degree, all right? But it has evolved. And the reason why it has evolved, what's significant is that it allows us to increasingly gain control of our own future evolution. Because instead of each generation 
being a consequence of the mixing of genes of previous generations, we can think out ahead into the future and we can manipulate and guide change within ourselves and the world around us. Now I call that purposeful evolution. And what that means is that evolution is the fundamental process of change in the universe. But evolution itself has been evolving and has gone through steps and in increasing power and complexity from the subatomic to the uh, atomic up through life geology. What humans bring now into the evolutionary process is that we can guide, consciously guide, however well we do it, that's another whole kettle of fish, but however well we do it, we can consciously guide change in ourselves and um, in the world around us. But people worry about the fact that we're gaining an understanding and control over our genetics, and we may start to manipulate our genetics and alter our very biological makeup. But the fact of the matter is, we've been doing that for thousands of years with the animals. We've been doing that with ourselves without that direct knowledge of genetics because we can selectively guide change both within ourselves and the world around us. And so future consciousness is the capacity that allows us to become more powerful and influential, way beyond anything before, in the future evolutionary saga of ourselves and the universe. And if you stopped and just thought, a creature who reacts to what is going on around them in the here and now, versus a creature that can think out ahead to where is this leading tomorrow or the next day? Mm. You put money on the second creature, not on the first creature. They're, they're, they're more adaptable. Arthur C. Clarke said the reason why the dinosaurs went extinct was because they didn't have a good space program. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. They didn't anticipate ahead of time you know, the asteroid hitting, okay? If I could see see and anticipate out ahead of me with reliability, and we do that with great reliability, like for example, uh, to use a more concrete example here, early on as hunters and gatherers, we definitely learned the migration patterns of animals that we hunted. We thought out ahead on that one. Agriculture, we thought out ahead by selectively planting the better examples of various grains and vegetables that we were interested that we wanted to eat. We selectively modified wolves into dogs. Absolutely. And, 
and boars into pigs. That's all us guiding the process of evolution. I would even say that religion, spirituality, philosophy, psychology, and the other humanistic sciences and disciplines are all efforts of the human conscious mind to guide the future evolution of the human conscious mind. That is, we attempt to, we attempt to through our future consciousness of where we could be, guide our own development and guide, and that's what we do with education too, try to guide the development. So that's why future consciousness is such an important mm -hmm. phenomena in the story of evolution. Yeah, absolutely love it because I think there is there is not only this aspect of evolutionary selection, but there is also purposeful selection, and this yeah. might actually add uh, add something more. You know, it, it has an added value to the concept of evolutionary psychology. On one hand, we can think of future consciousness as something that is selected evolutionarily, so this is beyond our thought simply those people who have a better future consciousness are selected are more likely to survive and so they go on and live right but yes. then you what do you say and this is the interesting point what you say is more than that there is an aspect of purposeful selection so yeah. those who understand the future better are are selecting certain capacities and as a consequence selecting certain human beings who have those capacities to go on live into the future so this is the purposeful aspect which i think adds additional value to the evolutionary meaning you give to future consciousness yeah yeah in fact alex i would suggest a point for you to chew around in your mind and see what you think of it is that right now in this conversation you're having with me you are attempting to purposefully evolve your own mind your own consciousness you're doing it right now we all do it we do it in the sense of we listen we think about what we hear we consider it relative to what we thought before we ask how it reflects on yourself does it have some kind of value and we often apply those ideas to our own cognitive development emotional development we are self-evolving beings because we can reflect on who we are, we can think about it, and we can attempt to alter and change it. And so we're purposefully evolving beings. In that sense, I'm an existentialist in that we are self-creative. We are self-creative beings. And we're not gonna just simply one day wake up and uh, be able to uh, modify ourselves because of modifying our genes. We've been playing this kind of game or this kind of reality for millions of years, attempting to improve ourselves and improve our world by thinking out ahead. There's a, an author, Schlein, and Schlein had a very simple observation I thought was very significant. He said that the overall trajectory of life as we watch it is from a awareness or sensitivity to from the very local and immediate to ever greater vistas in space and time. Mm. And so as consciousness has evolved through 
the animal and even perhaps in some primitive sense out of the plant kingdom, our vistas on space and time keep expanding. Global consciousness is important. When we're infants, we live in a very narrow, immediate kind of reality, an immediate here and now. And as our minds grow, they presumably expand in space and time. And expanding toward the future is part of the overall thrust of the evolution of consciousness and to, and it's to say, hey, you know something? We've been doing that all along. What is it that we're doing here? Can we do that even better? Because it sure looks like when we don't do that, we don't think out ahead, we don't imagine the consequences very well, we get into trouble. So how are we going to get out of the, our present uh, situation with respect to our stressed relationship with our environment, with enhanced future consciousness and global consciousness about what we're doing and guiding our present actions with respect to the future. That means more future consciousness on that one. Thanks, Tom. That's really helpful to understand this construct. And I love that you mentioned that future consciousness, among other things, also helps us to relieve the stress of the modern condition. So you know where I'm going with this. Uh, you know where I'm going with this. You know I'm very interested in the clash between what we call modernism and what came after modernism, postmodernism. And this connects really well with the last conversation I had in this series with Brent Cooper about metamodernism, which is a framework to transcend this ideological and epistemological divide between the two big sides we have now in academia. So I, I wanted to, to know more about how future consciousness can be used as a capacity to, to transcend this divide, because this seems to be what you suggest in the book, The Pursuit of Virtue. That's an amazing book, by the way, it's short and sweet. It's one of the books you have written that I love the most. I'll put it in the description box. In that book, what you say is that you seem to have a very deep understanding of the advantages of modernism and the disadvantages of modernism and the same for postmodernism. And then you hint at the solution, which is future consciousness. So I want to hear more about that. How do you think future consciousness can be similarly with metamodernism, something that we can use to transcend these ideological clashes we have? Okay, let's let's pull that apart uh, in a few uh, stages, a few bits. Okay, it seemed to me on listening to you in that previous podcast and looking at some definitions I went and looked up on metamodernism, that metamodernism falls into that group of philosophies which are attempting to create the next evolutionary step in consciousness after the last two identifiable steps of modernism and then postmodernism. And it seems to be an effort to take what is good or valuable or insightful 
and somehow to synthesize them together. Absolutely. Okay. Now, I've seen lots of different models of stages of uh, the evolution of consciousness where this kind of next stage is envisioned. That is, we hope for this next stage. Here's another candidate being presented, metamodernism. But what does metamodernism say? And I find that one thing it seems to say is that it does believe in a grand narrative. And the grand narrative it believes in is that it's the next evolutionary stage after two previous evolutionary stages of postmodernism and modernism. Now, you know, and I wrote about this in uh, not just Pursuit of Virtue, but in Future Consciousness book two, and actually in Contemporary Futurist Thought, is modernism means a lot of different things. So postmodernism seems to me to want to highlight the relativity of everything based upon individuality of perspective, whether it's a single individual, a culture, or a time. And there can't be any uniform or universal perspective because we exist in a irreducible pluralism of perspectives. And so we can't have any objectivity. We can't have any grand narrative, all right? And the postmodernists accuse the modernists of having a grand narrative. Now, I have a grand narrative. And it seems like, okay, my grand narrative is cosmic evolution. Now, I guess I would be a modernist in that respect because I believe in uh, the validity of modern science and that modern science appears to indicate that the universe is an evolutionary creation from the get-go. So I have a grand narrative. Now, postmodernists might say, well, that's just one perspective. But my response is going to be, give me another perspective that has as much support or evidence behind it. Okay. Now, there's no question that there is a perspective or subjective dimension to human consciousness. It's there. The postmodernists weren't the first to point that out and they won't be the last. It's there. There's subjectivity in everything. But we strive for objectivity. That's yeah. what the modernists did scientifically at least. But modernism can also mean things like capitalism and reductionism and mechanism and commercialism. On those points, you can see that it has failings. Okay, you could see that, and I wouldn't say that, I, I would say this grew out of the Enlightenment, but it wasn't simply a consequence of the Enlightenment. Our dependency on machines and tools can go too far. Part of the issue, you know, with uh, the development of our conscious minds is that, you know, we let uh, we serve tools as opposed to tools serving us. So we may become we may have become technologically addicted 
and cognitively fragmented in the modern world. We may live too much in the immediate here and now in the modern world. We're too addicted to blips and immediate reinforcement. There's lots of things you could point out, yeah. okay? All right, so I think a philosophical and scientific question on modernism, postmodernism, and what comes next is the question of how does one integrate into a coherent position the dimensions of objectivity and subjectivity without losing sight of either one of them? That's, that's going to be an important thing. Yeah. Yeah, okay. And I think there, there's things I could say about that, but I won't even go into them. A second thing is that we need to move beyond the idea what I believe is true, absolutely true, and no one can change my mind about it. This is the absolute truth, period. That's absolutism. Okay. All right. Yeah. Number two, one idea is as good as the next. That's total relativism and wishy-washy. You know, you're you know, everybody has their own idea and there's really no ultimate truth. The third one would be we do have tentative good answers here. We're not absolutely sure that they're true. And of course they may change, but this is the best we have right yeah. now, you know? And so a way in uh, between, so to speak. Yeah, yeah, a way in between, right? You know, the, one of the things that, that always struck me about postmodernism was that even though they pretend they pretended it was something new, philosophical relativism goes back hundreds and hundreds yeah. of years. You know, it does. You know, that may explain the feeling of destruction that is unfortunately carried by certain streams of postmodernism, the idea was not philosophical in nature. It was more of the end of Western civilization and modernism itself. Like it's almost like a revenge to what came before, right? Yeah, I, I now, of course, the Enlightenment agenda and modernism, which grew together with it, has limitations. Like one of the ones I talked about yeah. early on, and I'll come back to it right now, is that Uh, the Enlightenment agenda was too rationalistic. It thought we could control ourselves and the and our world just yeah. simply through reason and science. They missed emotion and um, yes. uh, missed the emotional side, the romantic side. Now, they did believe in an ending progress, and they did believe in control over nature. And I'm not yet willing to sort of give up on the idea of progress, we just may have to envision progress as more involving more of an ethical, psychological, social aspect, and not just simply an economic, technological, material aspect. Yeah, I think we have to broaden our concept of progress. Yeah, so where does future consciousness fit into this? Future consciousness fits in, in the sense that I attempted to articulate, describe in the book, Future Consciousness, good solid standards of psychological and social functioning. Mm. So what does it mean to be a good learner, a good thinker, a good cooperator, et cetera, et cetera? Taking into account 
factors like perception and personality, et cetera, et cetera. And so I think that our present challenges and difficulties would be vastly improved upon if we evolved purposively, put a lot of focus and attention on it, our conscious minds, and in particular, our future consciousness, but more broadly, our conscious minds. So the solutions to the problems of life lie within us and enhancing, strengthening our mental development. And how much that has happened over the last couple hundred years, it's been smattering. It's not been the focus. The focus is better and better, better and better gadgets, for example. And so in both books, I end up with this idea of wisdom, that it's a good ideal, it makes sense, here's what it means, and this will be the step to take. So when I think about what comes after modernism and postmodernism, my answer would be an age of wisdom. <laughs> <laughs> which builds out of future consciousness. Okay. Yeah. So we can say that future consciousness is a capacity that feeds into what will come next. It helps us to yes. think of the next candidate, be it metamodernism or whatever comes next, right? Which eventually will transcend the divides. But future consciousness is an input to that to help us get there. Something like yeah, that. Yeah, okay, except for yeah. one thing. Being wise and thoughtful for the moment, I know we're never, ever, I make a prediction, going to get rid of divides. Okay, part of the nature of reality is conflict and diversity and pluralism. This is, this is in a sense, essential. This is part of what needs to be learned. You can't force everybody, and you don't want to force everybody, to have the same mindset or to think the same way. Diversity yeah. is good, you know? So whatever will come next has to allow for, this is the lesson of postmodernism now, has mm -hmm. to allow for diversity. But at the same time, it has to aspire toward some sense of integration and unity. That's modernism. It's got to do both at the same time. But it's never going to get rid of, as a philosopher that I studied once said, the universe is fundamentally an ongoing conflict between order and chaos that is irreconcilable. It'll never come to a conclusion. And that's why we have time. Things keep moving along because you're not going to synthesize it and, but you're going to keep attempting to, and it, it always will have a diversity in it. And anytime people attempt to try to put the confines on the human mind and human beings, it blows up on them, backfires. Yeah. yeah, you're totally spot on. I think the the ideal candidate, and, and now I venture into a prediction. Okay, <laughs> all right. The ideal candidate should try to find a way to, I'm not going to use the word harmonize, although I have it in mind, but let's just say manage 
the right spot, you know, the sweet spot between order and chaos. So to strive for that, and it might yeah. not be able to do it, you know, but I think as long as we continuously strive to find a balance between the two forces, and I know how abstract this might sound, but you know what I'm talking about, then I think it's okay. Because the problem I have when I said divide is that a lot of what we see now is not because we're trying to find a balance, is that because we're trying to pull the other camp to our side forcefully, right? And I'm yeah. thinking about like yes. positivists yes. on one side of the spectrum, like positivists, empiricists, reductionist viewpoints and radical postmodernists on the other, right? So that's what we don't want. We want to strive for something that is a bit more inclusive, yes, postmodern in, in nature, but also unitary. I think yeah, we're agreeing on that. Yeah, and we are. We're agreeing on that, Alex. That balance is going to be dynamic and wiggly and ongoing. You could you could have adversarial relationships here where the other is attempting to eliminate one side, to yeah, destroy yeah, it, yeah, like right. in war, right, you know, and, uh, and yet, as uh, uh, speaking from the point of view of a modernist, mm. or believing in truth and ethics, I think certain ideas and certain values and certain norms and practices are better than others, and I think mm -hmm. you can show that yeah to a great degree. So I cannot, in the greatest liberal postmodern mentality that I could muster, say that it's okay for males to have women as their slaves and as second class citizens, yeah. okay? We just can't do that. You know, anybody that does that is just plain ethically wrong. That's one thing we can't tolerate, okay? We're not gonna tolerate that, okay? So we're gonna have to put certain constraints certain constraints on our postmodern liberalism. Absolutely. Uh, anything goes, you know, because anything doesn't go. Yeah. Um, um, anyway, okay. So great. That's valuable. Yeah. Thanks, Tom. Yeah, I love that. So right. I, I'm going to ask you uh, a question in closing as we're reaching the end of our time together. I know you're working on two new books, which is quite astounding you're you've been working on two new books at the same time do you want to tell us more about your last few efforts on that direction and whether we can find them already and where yeah yeah i will uh, aside from working on uh the uh, future consciousness books uh for um uh, quite a while now maybe for about 10 12 years i first developed um a uh, extensive um a workshop on the history of science fiction, and I eventually decided that I was going to write a history of science fiction because I find science fiction very fascinating. Well, I started writing the history of science fiction, and as I researched it, I realized that there was so much to it, and it went back so far that it went from being a single book to many books. All right. Okay, so what happened was that three years ago, I published volume one mm -hmm. uh, on my evolution, uh, evolutionary mythology of science fiction from yes. Prometheus, the Greeks, uh, up to the Martians at the turn of the 19th century. That came out a couple of years ago. But the second volume actually uh, bifurcated 
it became volumes two and three. And here they right. are. Okay. And these actually were just published last week. And these Great. that I'm holding in my hand are the first two, uh, are the first copies that I got from the publisher. And wow. these run from H.G. Wells and uh, the Time Machine through Metropolis up to Superman and Olaf Stapleton and Star Maker. So these go from 1895 up to 1940-ish, somewhere around there. And I would definitely recommend them. And there's lots of good stuff in there, stuff in there about science fiction and future studies. H.G. Wells was a great futurist of the time, and he had a lot of thoughts on it. And they just came out last week. So they're up on Amazon. They're, uh, they, they're not up on my website yet, but you can go to Amazon. All three books, in fact, this one to begin with is up there too. And in fact, this is an acknowledgement of the fact that humans still have myths, but now our myths are science fiction stories as opposed to our ancient stories of deities oh. and gods and goddesses. Now they become uh, uh, robots and spacemen and other things like that. Yeah, so the, they just came out, volumes two and three. It's not just a catalog of science fiction, but it's also your theory about how science, how science fiction uh, is affecting current images of the future, right? Yeah, and yes, in fact, it also is a also goes into how the evolution of intellectual thought and philosophy and religion and science impacted and seeded the development of science fiction. But science fiction doesn't just influence society, it's a creation from society. And I'm very sincere about the idea that it is our modern mythology. And mythology is very powerful. It has been throughout history. It's our modern credible mythology. So at the beginning, I start with ancient times. I go back to the Greeks and talk about how the Greeks seeded it. You know, like for example, I throw this question out, when was the first science fiction novel written? You know, and people might go back a couple hundred depends, years. Yeah, it depends what you, what you define as science fiction, right? Well, how about if I had a story in which we had a conflict taking place in outer space between creatures of the moon and of the sun battling it out for who was going to settle Venus and that humans were involved in this space battle and there was space technology in it with webs being created through space to move ships around. And that's part of the scenario of Lucian's story called True History, which wow. was written in 70 AD. Amazing. It goes a long time back. It's a space opera. It's a it's a very primitive space opera, 70 AD. Uh, so anyway, it, there's a long history to science fiction. Obviously, there's Frankenstein. Obviously, there's Jules Verne and H.G. Wells and uh, many other people along the way. And um, uh, so um, uh, I got I more volumes to come. How long is the, the whole series going to be? Well, it was supposed to be three volumes, but I did mm -hmm. three and I'm not done. So it's going to be at least wow. two more, at least two more volumes. At least two more. So we're looking at a five-volume series about science fiction and its yeah. role in human evolution. That's amazing. 
Yeah, yeah. And, and it is, you're right, it is a lot of cataloging. So I do describe yeah. lots of stories and lots of authors and all of that, for sure. So it's at least two more novels, uh, two more books. Yeah, along the way. That's super cool. I'm gonna paste all of that in the description box down below for those who are interested. And I have to say that uh, I haven't read the new books, but I read the old ones and I found them the most detailed and one of the most fascinating uh, accounts of science fiction I've read. Although I'm not a science fiction scholar, but I did appreciate a lot of your work. So I do encourage readers to, to go and grab them. Yeah, and I do have a, 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 a video uh, site up for my uh, science history of science fiction webinar series, where I do the history of uh, science fiction in webinar format, and the videos have all been recorded, and they're all up there. You can get to the link to what's called the video school mm -hmm. uh, through the Center for Future Consciousness website, but you can watch the videos, which at this point in time run up through uh, uh, 1965 on the, on the webinar. It's up to that point. I didn't finish the webinar series yet either, the videos, but there's at least 15 of the videos up there too. So that's another way to consume the material in a more lazy, friendly fashion. Yeah, a lazy framework with lots of pictures, lots of pictures. Yeah. No. That's good to know. Yeah, yeah, because I'm, I'm also a visual learner. So I'll paste that yeah. too in the description box. That's important. Yes. Thanks. Okay. All right. Okay. All right. So Tom, uh, such yes. a great pleasure. Uh, it was really interesting. I love that future consciousness is just not not only what we think, but it's way more. So I, I think yes. there are so many elements that are so fascinating about it, and they connect well with so many disciplines that I think we should dialogue more with, including evolutionary psychology, but also the modern postmodern divide. So really interesting conversation. I love that. And again, thanks for your time. Thanks a million. Yes. And thank you, Alex. It was nice uh, meeting you on the screen. Yes. Uh, and, right. and chatting for an hour, hour and a half. Okay. So anyway, thank you. And um, we'll be in touch. We'll be in touch. Take care. Okay. All right. Bye-bye.